Uh, if you have a Bible and you do because there's one in the pew rack in front of you, turn to Mark chapter 14, which is on page 1590, I'm sorry, 1578 in the pew Bible. If you needed help, 1578. This is Mark 14, and I'm only going to read verses 1 through 11 um, because that's what I'm going to preach on. I'm reading on the NIV translation. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went out to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> okay, I'm just going to be honest about this. I dread passages like this in terms of preaching. Um, you've probably heard my saying, I don't have emotions and I'm angry that you've insinuated that I do. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't like emotional passages like this. I mean, this passage is all about devotion and all that kind of thing. And I just stare at it blankly, you know, like when my wife is talking to me during a Packers game. And so, um, but at, while I was reading, a, you know, sort of doing my sermon research for this week, I came across something in um, Tim Keller's commentary on this that really kind of put this in stark relief for me in a way that I hadn't before. It wasn't a totally new idea, but it was a really clarifying one. One of the things that you'll notice in this passage is that um, this woman's action is sandwiched by the Pharisees' desire to kill Jesus and Judas' betrayal of Jesus. So this is a devotion betrayal sandwich passage. And one of the things Keller says in the commentary is he says, one of the things that this has to let every Christian in on is this, is this idea that for a Christian— Every action is an action of devotion or betrayal, period. Because the minute you are related to God, and he is Lord, and you are his, and you are his son or daughter, and he is the father, and you are one in Christ, and there you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and the Holy Spirit has made his habitation in you, and you've become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and 
all of that has happened, then every action you do is in the context of a relatedness with somebody that you love. Just like if you're married and have children, every action you do isn't just your duty or not your duty. Every action is an action of devotion or betrayal towards your wife and towards your children or towards your husband and towards your children or towards your parents. Because that relatedness exists, just because that covenantal relationship is, by definition now, every action for the rest, as long as you both shall live, is either an action moving towards betrayal or devotion. Every single one. That's a little stark, isn't it? And so the passage really out of point us towards devotion, right? I mean, that's what this woman's action is all about. It's all about devotion, right? It's about this very extravagant, very unmeasured, very unproportional, very absolute, just devotion to Jesus. And one of the issues that comes up with this is that really, really deep, unmeasured, unproportionate, absolute devotion is something that's very deeply distrusted today, isn't it? We have a word for it. You know the word— to call somebody who's really devoted a mad dog. Fanaticism, right? That's the word we use. You're, that's whenever we think somebody's too devoted to something, we just call them a fanatic, and that just means they're a crazy dog, and we don't have to argue for why we think they're too devoted to something, right? Um, so a few months ago, I was watching a debate at one of the Washington, D.C. colleges between Newt Gingrich and, and Howard Dean. And they were, they were having an exchange about whether or not religion should be in the public square. And Howard Dean said, you know, it's not religion that's the problem, it's religious fanaticism that's the problem. Um, and of course, you know, that's not the first time I'd heard that. I mean, you've heard that a lot, right? It's not religion that's the problem, it's religious fanaticism that's the problem. Um, that is just one of the most soft-headed things I've ever heard, frankly. Um, and I'm not picking on Howard Dean, because I, I mean, I've heard Republicans say it, I've heard lots of people say it, I've probably at some point I said it and thought it. Um, and I mean, I just can't think of an idea that has—well, there's a few—that have more popular appeal but are more ridiculous than the idea that um, it is the intensity of devotion that's what's wrong with religion or anything. Um, I, mean, I mean, think about it. Is it really the level of devotion or is it the idea one is devoted to that creates the problem? I mean, is it the fact that a terrorist— is extremely devoted to an idea, or is it the fact that he's devoted to terrorizing that's the problem? Right? I mean, let's just let's use the, let's use the gears, right? This isn't, re- this isn't really hard, is it? Um, or you can think about it this way. Is emotional moderation really what's necessary to change the world? If we want the world to be a better place, what we need is more people with completely moderated emotions. That's what's necessary, right? If people were a little more half-hearted about things, everything would be better, right? Now, there's some people who believe that. There's some people who really believe that. That if if people are self-interested in their own economic place in the world, they don't want to risk that, and therefore they'll go with the flow— and then the sociological or governmental structures we put around them will herd people, and we won't get violent. And we won't, I mean, there are people that really do believe that. I think it's ridiculous. I think we'll get a terrible world. And I don't really believe 
that most of the great people that brought about change in the world, it would have been better if they had been a little bit more balanced or proportional in their ethics. I mean, would it have been better if Gandhi had been a little less fanatical, right? Or Martin Luther King Jr. or Martin Luther, right? You know, if they would have just been, if they would have just cooled it a little bit, right, things would have been a lot better. I just don't buy that. I don't buy it. Or William Wilberforce. You know, if he just would have backed off on the whole transatlantic slave thing, I mean, it's only 40% of every African that came from Africa that died on the boat and had to be thrown as a rotting corpse into the Atlantic. I mean, what's the big deal? Why be so fanatical about spending 40 years of your life and destroying your health to stop that? I mean, isn't that a little unmeasured? Isn't that a little fanatical? Or this lady in the center, do you know who she is? Her name's Catherine Bushnell. Anybody know who Catherine Bushnell is? She's a Wisconsin hero. Okay? Catherine Bushnell was a medical doctor in the 1880s. She was part of the Christian Women's American Temperance League. She was an evangelical Christian. And what had happened was in the northern mining and lumbering camps of northern Michigan and Wisconsin, you had lumbering camps that were just all men, right? So if you have these lumbering and mining camps that are all men, what do you just have to have? Well, of course, brothels with 13 and 14-year-olds under whip and bulldog, right? Of course. And so in northern Wisconsin and northern Michigan, there were these brothels attached to these mines and these, um, these lumberyards that, that took in these basically white slave girls who were 13, 14, and up, who were kept forcibly in slavery. The Wisconsin government sent a government agent out to check it out to see if the government should intervene. After going to one brothel, the man returned and said, it's okay, everything's fine, nothing needs to be done. Catherine Bushnell read a medical report from Ashland where one of these girls had been doused with gas and set on fire and the coroner's report had the man's name in it and he hadn't been charged. She just went buck nuts on the thing. She worked at it and worked at it and worked at it and worked at it and because of her work and because of her publicizing this and because of that, that injustice got remedied because she faced death because she was a fanatic. Straight away, she was a fanatic. She was totally committed to the crazy idea that 13 and 14-year-old girls shouldn't be repeatedly raped and enslaved in northern Wisconsin. So you tell me, is it the intensity of emotion that's the problem? Or is it what our emotions are intense about that is the issue? C.S. Lewis, um, arguably C.S. Lewis's great book is a book called The Abolition of Man, in which he discusses teaching. And he, there are a number of teachers in his day that he felt like they believed that moderating students' emotions was the most important thing. And there's this quote in the early part of Abolition of Man that says this, and I, I think it's one of the best ways um, to say it. He says this, He's speaking of these other professors that he disagrees with. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda. And they have learned from tradition that youth is sentimental. And they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. Sorry, that's a typo. My own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak 
excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. We cannot get people to not be fanatical towards bad things by telling them you shouldn't have intense emotions. We're human beings. We're supposed to have intense emotions. We have all kinds of crazy hormones pulsing through us all the time, enlivening, awakening, pushing emotions. The only way to get the kind of outcome we want is to harness our emotional intensity, to harness our desire to be devoted to something, to the just things, to the right things, to the God things. He says this more generally in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The ce- I think the central idea in this passage is that you've got a woman who shows devotion to Jesus that is all out of proportion, all out of regularity, all out of moderation, and all out of measure to the norms of even Jesus' closest disciples. I mean, the table where it should have been the safest to be totally devoted extravagantly to Jesus is the place where the people sitting around grow indignant and rebuke her harshly. One commentator says that the Greek word Mark uses for um, harshly is like steaming, mad, hot ears, quivering lip. Like, it's a very intense word for being mad at somebody. They were mad at this woman. And I think what we need to then take from this passage is that Jesus just is—he is not seeking moderate men and women. He's not— He's not looking for half-hearted, moderate people. He's looking for people seeking an intensity and proportion of devotion that he looks at and says, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's only one place in Mark's gospel the word beautiful is even used. Right here, this woman's action. It's beautiful. It's not sensible. It's not, there's nothing practical about it. It's not a task. It's an extravagant expression that has an aesthetic value. That is, it's beautiful. Okay, I want to do two things this morning pretty quick. The first is, I want to talk about, a little bit about this passage in the Bible and how it relates to our devotedness to Scripture. And I want to do that kind of fast. And then I want to come back to this idea of devotion, okay? One of the reasons why I want to talk about Scripture is that 
This is a passage that is a prime example of what's sometimes called the synoptic problem. That is, that when you, th- this, this sto- the story of a woman anointing Jesus is in all four Gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Mark and Matthew, it's almost identical. A couple words different, virtually identical. In Luke se- 7, there's an event where a woman um, anoints Jesus. But it's in Galilee, it's not in Bethany. But very similar, alabaster jar, the guy who owns the house is Simon, pours out, you know, uses her hair, same as in Matthew, or same as in John, some real similarities there. And then John, in John 12, tells the story of a woman, but he names her, it's Mary, Lazarus and Martha's sister. And she's the one who does this um, in Bethany at this guy Simon, the leper's house. And so on the face of it, if you just go to your Bible and you read those four different passages, it will—it doesn't look good, okay? It doesn't look good for the Bible. It looks like it's one event, and it looks like these biblical authors are telling it very differently, but not differently as in just a different perspective, but actually confusing facts and just telling it wrong— and somebody's got to be wrong here kind of gig. And what generally happens is people read that and they read the different passages and they just go, ancient authors. Just weren't, they just weren't that careful. You know, who knows what really happened? Probably some woman did something with some perfume, you know? And um, usually what doesn't occur to us is, I bet if I dig... I'm going to find something. Because if you've ever done that before, it takes hours. It just does. It takes hours. It takes resources. Um, it, it, it just, it, it takes concentration, rather intense concentration to lay all this stuff out. And um, if you don't, if you're not used to that, it's hard. It's really hard to do. And so you, so you just end up depressed. And what it does to your level of devotion towards the Bible as God's word that you can feed on spiritually is that it diminishes it, right? It's just practical reality, right? Um, But this passage, like lots of others, is one of those passages that if you dig, you find things you'd never expected to find. Um, For example, one of the things that makes the whole thing fishy is is that in both cases, the guy who owns the house's name is Simon. So it makes it sound like it's got to be the same event, right? You've got Simon the Pharisee, Simon the leper. It's both Simon. They're in the same house, but one's in Galilee. It's got to be wrong. Okay, that's true. Um, But sometimes things that, that look like they're significant are incidental. For example, do you know how many Simons there are in the New Testament? There's a pile of them. Right? Obviously, there's, si- there's this Simon, right? And then there's Simon Peter. Judas's father is Simon. There's, even among the 12 disciples, there's two Simons. That's one of the reasons why Simon Peter has to be Peter. Not just because Peter's a cooler name because you're the rock, but also because there was another Simon, right? And so Jesus would be like, Simon, and they'd go, what, what? And so he just goes, okay, you're going to be Peter, you're the rock, and we'll just solve this right now, you know? And so it's just, just, so just within the 12 disciples, you've got two Simons, right? There's eight or nine just in the New Testament. And then Simus Mangus in Acts 8, who's the sorcerer guy, he's Simon. There's just Simons everywhere, okay? Um, it's, it's not an uncommon name at all, right? So the idea that Jesus could find himself in two houses owned by a guy named Simon isn't weird. It's not weird. It's a little coincidental that he gets anointed in two of them, you know? Yeah. I'll give you that. But it's 
which seems pretty evident once you realize how kind of normal the name Simon is, that the Luke 7 passage, which is the real problematic one, is just a different event. It's just a different event. Um, the other thing is, is that St. Augustine had a really interesting solution to this. He said, what if, he said, what if, because he wrote a whole harmony of the Gospels where he tried to take all these problems and kind of figure them out. And he came to this one, he said, what if in John 11, where it says that Mary's the one that anointed Jesus, what if that isn't pointing to chapter 12 when she anoints Jesus? What if she had already anointed Jesus? What if it's two different anointings, but the same girl? What if Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' sister actually was a pretty sinful woman, right? I mean, she's the one who's not doing the right thing and working in the kitchen, right? She, I mean, she's, she's the one totally sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking it in, right? And in Luke seven forty, what does Jesus say about the woman crying at his feet? She who has been forgiven much loves much. She was, this woman is also very attentive to Jesus. I mean, it's possible it's the same woman Two anointings. It's possible. I'd say unlikely. Possible. We don't know. But the point is, is that when you go after these passages, guess what happens? You learn an enormous amount about Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12, and Luke 7. You see things in all four of those passages you never would have seen if you hadn't compared them to the other passages. And what starts out as a problem that kind of makes you go, what's going on here? Ends up being something that creates the texture and the depth to all four passages. And you end up much further downstream, whoops, than you would have ever been before. Because you dug. Because when you had a choice between exerting devotion and trying to find out what was going on, or just kind of getting depressed and letting it be, you made a choice to dig in and get at it and try to figure out what the heck is going on. One of the most fruitful places for this in the whole Bible is when New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. Most of the time in the New Testament, when Old Testament authors quote the New Testament, it's really puzzling at first. You're kind of like, what is this guy doing? This has nothing to do with that. Um, and some people just say, well, they were inspired and they get to quote scripture like that, just totally out of its context, and we shouldn't do that because uh, we're not inspired authors. And that's very pious, and that's, piety is good. It's, I think, also totally wrong um, because what I found is that the more I dug on those, I found that they were actually, the New Testament authors was actually right. They were actually using the passage much more much more interestingly and much more validly than even I would have used it. That, there's, that there was stuff I found that I would not have found before. And I had a particular seminary professor that pushed on this. He's like, nope, keep looking. Nope, keep looking. Nope, keep looking. Where, and then finally I'd go, oh, no kidding. That's crazy. Look at that. And so, before we talk about the woman in the passage— I just want to make this brief point about the passage itself, particularly for those of you who are, who are Christians, but who, you know, you find the Bible a little difficult. You're not really sure how much should I trust it? What do I do? In most of these cases, what you will find is if you will, if you will give the Bible a balance of devotedness, if you'll press in there and go after it or get somebody to help you who's good at doing that, you're going to find that you're going to come out with more texture and more depth than you ever had before. That's what you're going to find. And one of the things that you also need to remember, too, is if there are four um, testimonies of Jesus' life, do you really want them to be identical? 
I mean, think about that. Let's say somebody's being tried for murder. There's four witnesses to a quitter. Let's say you're her, right? You're, you're on trial for murder. You don't want the four witnesses talking about you to say the exact same thing, do you? You don't. You know, and even a few little minor discrepancies that the other lawyer attacks is actually good. Why? Because if everybody's stories agree, do you really believe it's four separate witnesses? Of course not. Of course, it's, like when, it's like when you have three kids and they all get in trouble at the same time, but they know you're coming, you know? And then you ask them what happened and they all tell you the exact same thing. We don't know. Something just fell. <laughs> Daddy, gravity didn't work right for like a split second. Right? And they all say it. What do I know? They're lying, right? That's what I know. You know, so if, if all— One of the things we need to recognize is you don't want all four Gospels to easily harmonize. The minute you have all four Gospels that easily harmonize, you've got one witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In, in the Gospels, at least. You still have some others, but— Whereas when you see these sort of apparent discrepancies, things that you have to work to harmonize— that's all good if you think of them in terms of a witness to something that actually happened. Does that make sense? And then there's the added grace that God gives by forcing us to work with that textured nature, which ends up allowing us to learn so much more from the passage. So, when you f meet that, go for it. That's the point of that. Let me move on to the second thing, and that is um, beautiful devotion to Christ isn't proportionate or moderate. That's the point of this passage, okay? Beautiful devotion to Jesus. There's nothing proportionate or moderate about it. And when um, your faith starts to moderate and get proportionate, um, what that means is, isn't that you're becoming more mature. It means that you're, you're slowly growing to love the world again more. That's what it means. I'll get to why that is in just a minute. There's nothing proportionate or moderated about devotion to Jesus. Now, um, when you look at this episode, these, these 11 verses, the climax of this episode is really easy to miss. Because we're not very good at hearing really short stories and then filling in all the details, particularly since we didn't live in the first century. Um, but one of the things that we need to recognize is that um, the alabaster jar that gets broken here is a kind of stone, okay? So what's happening here is this woman has a relatively good-sized stone jar full of a per pure perfume that's really designed to be mixed with other things. It's a perfume base. And so, um, and it's worth a year's wages for a blue-class, or a blue-collar worker, okay? So it's worth like 30K to us, okay? So this woman essentially busts out this stone bottle, breaks the top off of it, pours 30K worth of very um, intensified perfume base onto somebody, and then just keeps going. And this is all happening in a relatively small room, okay? Um, it's not really uncommon for a rabbi who's the guest at a house to be anointed. Somebody has a little jar of oil. They put, you know, it's mixed with something. They put a little on their hand. They anoint 
them out of respect and honor. Um, but this is really nutty, okay? It, that's what you, it, it's, it's really important to recognize how nutty this is, okay? Um, this is probably a family heirloom. You don't just get a year's salary and a bottle of perfume. It's a major family asset, okay? Because it could be, in, in difficult times, it could be sold. So she's giving up an enormous amount of material security, not just looking silly in front of a bunch of men, okay? And it, I mean, it is way more perfume. I mean, it, it's, it's really crazy, I mean, it, it makes it sound like if Mary had had a five-gallon bucket of this stuff, she would have dumped it all on Jesus, okay? That's what it sounds like. Um, and so, I mean, if, think about what this would be like for you. You have a friend, you go to the mall, and your friend's going to somebody's party, like a birthday party or something like that, or like an engagement party, and they, they, are, they decide they're going to spend a year's salary on a gift— for the engagement party, and they're going to buy something perishable, okay? So it's an engagement party. You know, it's a big deal, but it's not that big. I mean, it's not everything in the whole world. And they decide to buy $44,000 worth of flowers, okay, for this engagement party. And you're just kind of like, you're crazy. You're just crazy. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I'm one of those husbands that never buys flowers for my wife. Now, we've been married 13 years almost, to 12, year, 12 years, and I have, I've bought the woman flowers twice, okay? Twice. One time a friend of mine gave me an ex-girlfriend's flowers, and I gave them to her, and that didn't go well. Um, but yeah, you can hear that story another time. Um, but, uh, but I've only—and here's why. I can't part with the 50 bucks. I can't do it. I cannot take 40 or 50 bucks and hand them over for something that's already dead. I can't do it. And I asked her, I was like, baby, do you really want me to? Because I will. I, I'll cut this arm right off. Like, I, I mean, you want, and she's just like, because in my mind, I'm like, I'll buy you a camping headlamp for $40, man. I can buy you like a, a new Teflon pot. I can buy you a headlamp for camping. I can buy you something you'll actually use. I mean, it, it's not already dead, right? You see, this woman didn't do something for Jesus that was going to last. She dumped 30K on a three-day at best investment of effect, at best. It's like buying $40,000 worth of flowers just because you love somebody. I'm going to buy you. I mean, can you imagine what happened? My wife comes home from New York next week. I've got $40,000 worth, worth of flowers in the house for her. She comes home. I'm like, baby. <laughs> this is for you. Now, besides saying about time, I, she would probably say to me, Nick, have you lost your mind? Have you lost your mind? This is, that's, this is crazy. And I was like, well, baby, I can't take them back. You better enjoy them. <laughs> right? And can you imagine what the house would smell like? Like, you'd have to take like six Motrin every 40 minutes. <laughs> just to not die. Right? But, like, that's what's happening. So when the disciples say, are you kidding me? 
That's totally normal, okay? The disciples are not just these curmudgeon cynics, okay? They've been with Jesus for three years. They sort of get what he's talking about. They're starting to understand the sacrificial thing. They're starting to see that judgment's coming on the temple and that there's a whole other way to follow God. And they're, they're starting to get this. And then this woman does this. And they're still, they're like, What? This is crazy. You got to realize that is exactly what you would do. That's what I would do. If we were all sitting there, we would be like, what did you just do? (laughs) I mean, couldn't you use like two drops of that and then sold the rest and given it to the poor and we'd all still have a headache, you know? (laughs) Like, So it's, it's really important to, to recognize, in order to really understand the weight of this passage, that the, the response of the disciples from a certain perspective was, was a good sense kind of response. And here's, here's the thing that we have to recognize, is that this woman knew that darn well. It's not like the disciples, because they're intelligent men— understood that dumping $30,000 of perfume over a guy's head is crazy, and she didn't because she's a woman or something. Like, she knew, she knew darn well that what she was doing was nutty from the perspective of virtually every human that would ever hear about it. She knew that. She knew that she was going to be socially reproached for it. She knew that she was emptying her bank account for it. She knew all that stuff. And she did it just the same. She did just the same. Because she had gotten to a point in her devotion to Jesus where she was totally self-forgetful and totally wholehearted. She just didn't give a flying rip what anybody thought about her except Jesus anymore. It really got to that point where she, she really, I mean, these are Jesus' closest friends. These are his disciples. They're important. I mean, she just, she doesn't care what they think. She really doesn't care. She did anyway. She, they can make, make fun of her all they want. Who cares? I don't care. All I care about is what Jesus thinks. And she's completely wholehearted about it because here's the, here's the problem with the whole idea of proportion and balance. The minute you say, well, Nick, you know, we need to be balanced. We need to be measured. We need to be proportionate about these things. What's the logic built into that? Now, when I— Do any of you remember when Greg Scharf was here preaching— was my preaching professor, and he kind of made fun of me, because everybody who preaches here really should. Um, One of the things he really pushed hard on me about when I, my first year in seminary was that I was totally unbalanced. I just would run all over the stage and yell the whole time. You think I yell a lot now? I'll tell you what. I grew charismatic. And so, um, I, uh, he was just like, you know, when you say things, you don't say them right. You know, you, you say superlatives when the thing isn't superlative. You say things that apply to everybody that don't apply to everybody. And you need to think these things through and you need to measure out what you're saying instead of just say these sort of like big ridiculous things because people aren't going to take you seriously. And you can be, you know, red-faced and you can spit all the way to the sixth row and they still aren't going to—it's not going to move anybody. And so you need to be proportionate and balanced and so on. And, and that was really helpful for me. And there are a lot of things where— Everybody in this room, we probably could be more balanced, be more proportional, okay? But whenever we're being proportional or balanced, it's always because, implicit in that logic, there is more than one consideration, right? 
So I'm really not supposed to balance my romantic love between Alexi and another woman, am I? She wouldn't find that flattering. She wouldn't say, oh, you're becoming more balanced. Isn't that great? (laughs) Probably not, right? You see, there are some things in life where there is only one pole. There's only one side of the teeter-totter. It's not on a fulcrum. There aren't multiple things to balance, right? If your kid misbehaves and you're the parent, it is your job to balance severity and compassion, right? It's your job to do that. You're trying to form them and not break their spirit at the same time. You're balancing something. You're trying to figure out how stern to be, yet how compassionate and soft to be. How do I communicate that you need to be disciplined, but I love you deeply, and that's actually the motivation behind the discipline. How do I work this, right? You've got to confront a friend. How do you balance the relational, right? There's lots of things you need to balance. When it comes to devotion to Jesus, what is the other pole? You see the issue? It's great to be moderated. It's great to be proportionate. It's good to be balanced people. But there are certain things in life where there is no other pole. There's no other side of the teeter-totter. There's nothing to balance on. There isn't anything else. There is only one point of reference for whatever devotion or resources are available. And so um, when the question comes, how devoted to Jesus should I be? The question just ends up being, how much devotion is there? Really? Because even when you say, well, you know, I've got wife and kids and work, and I have, I have other things I have to express some kind of devotion towards, those, even, in, even with those things, they become subsidiary things where our devotion goes through Jesus to those things. They're secondary things. So, it's an, and that's really important to recognize or we destroy all those secondary things because we make them primary things and they blow up, Right? If you love your kids because you love your kids, you're going to make your kids nutty and neurotic, right? But if Jesus asks you to pass on life and to be nurturing with another like he has been nurturing with you, then you can just be a parent, right? So so when there's only one pole of devotion, there's only one object, and it just—the question is just how much is there? So when the the question—so you could could ask this woman, you say, Mary, how much perfume ought you put on a man? Right? There were some ladies in my last church that I wanted to ask that question. How much perfume should you put on a woman? Honestly. Honestly. Right? But you can ask, because you could say, well, he's a human man. Whatever, you know, there's a certain portion of perfume you might put on a human being. But if you're anointing them out of the motivation of expressing your level of devotion, then you just end up turning the bottle over. That's all there is to it. You just use all of it. If it's $30,000 worth, it's $30,000 worth. If it's a five-gallon bucket, it's a five-gallon bucket. That's just all there is to it. He gets it all. You see? And that is the offensive idea that broke Judas's back. Do you notice that? Both Matthew and Mark tell the story that way. That it was that event that Judas says, if he feels this way, I'm out. I'm out. He doesn't understand money. He doesn't understand these kinds of things. He doesn't understand how this stuff is supposed to work. I'm going to go to some people that do. And that, this is what made, this is, this is what caused Judas to leave. The other gospels tell us that he slipped out during the Last Supper. But this is the event that closed the deal. 
that this is the kind of devotion that Jesus deserves. And the reason why I think that this is important for us is because this is an enormous temptation in a sophisticated, high-minded city like Madison. The temptation for us to be like the disciples and to see that kind of extravagant generosity and devotion and to cynically nitpick at it and say, well, I mean, it's not nitpicking, but it's, it's a high-mindedness of, oh, don't you realize what you could, what the other opportunities you had? Don't, didn't, don't you see the array of possibilities? Don't you understand that um, if you were more sophisticated, you would have realized you should have done something significantly different? I mean, I think that that's the sort of culture we are in. That's what we, this is, this is the culture we live in. This is, and I don't mean culture as in like those, peop, those people out there. I mean, all, I mean, this is our city that we are a part of. And um, it's very easy for us to act like the disciples. Um, James Edwards, a commentator on this passage of Mark, said this, The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. Sorry, this is the wrong, that's the wrong quote. There it is. The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation, nor does it have a problem with immoderate wealth or power or sex or influence. But it has, it does have a problem with too much religion. And one of the reasons why this is very important for us as a church that wants to live for Jesus in the city in a way that's not self-righteous, but in a way that is truthful is we have to recognize that it is this kind of extravagant, unmeasured devotion that is the thing that can show the bankruptcy of the kind of sophistication and cynicism that keeps people from looking at Jesus. It, I mean, it is, um, it, is, you, it is usually not calling the fake thing a fake thing that helps people see it's a fake thing. It is, it is putting the fake thing next to a real thing that totally blows away the fake thing. So, for example, that's a puppy, right? And you can convince a child that that's a puppy until they see one of these. <laughs> and then, that's not really a puppy anymore, is it? That's a puppy. Just, it's a simple fact. That's all. That's all. And it is going, it is only real devotion that shows sham devotion. It's only real humility that shows self-righteousness. It's only real sacrifice that shows sham love and high-minded apathy. It's only real generosity that shows greed for what it really is. <clears throat> um, uh, in the screw tape letters, the demon screw tape says it this way. He says, thus, if you are trying to damn your man by the romantic method— by submerging him in self-pity from imaginary distresses, you would try to protect him at all costs from any real pain. Because, of course, five minutes genuine toothache would reveal the romantic sorrows for the nonsense that they really are and unmask your whole strategy, right? So, you know, if you, like, find meaning in, like, you know, being kind of like, oh, my life is so hard and there's all this drama and I, I have so much pain. Screw tape is like, if you get somebody to, like, work in on themselves and gloom like that, and that's how we're trying, don't, don't let them have a toothache. Because <laughs> the minute their tooth actually hurts and they remember what real pain really is, they'll realize all of this thing they're doing is just a total sham. 
And it's the same thing with almost all the things we want to overcome culturally. We're not going to—we're not going to make any real hay by just going, oh, we don't agree with those people. They're wrong. They're just wrong. Mm-mm-mm. And they'll just say that right back at us, right? And then we'll spend our whole life just trying to be a little nicer than them in how we say it. Um, which really will equate to usually us being just a little more snide, right? Um, but it takes that reality to blow away what's not real, right? Now, here's the problem with all this is that um, you, you can't do it by just telling yourself to do it, can you? You can't, you can't walk out of church today and say, you know, I'm supposed to be fully devoted to Jesus. I'm supposed to not have a measured proportion of my heart given to God. I need to give everything in my heart to God. Let him give me back everything. He wants to be a subsidiary passion, and then I will be passionate in him towards those things, and that's what I'm going to do, and gosh darn it, I'm going to, you know, pull myself up by my manure bootstraps, and I'm going to get there from here. That's not going to happen, is it? Um, And here's why. Because it takes beauty to inspire devotion. Where are you going to get that beauty? Where are you going to get the beauty? Because just guilty unit isn't going to work. Law isn't going to do it. Something has to be inspiring to inspire you. That doesn't require a task. It requires an aesthetic. It, It requires beauty. Where is that beauty going to come from? See, that's an important question. And, and the reality is, is it comes from the one who did for you what this woman did for Jesus. Jesus' devotion to you is totally out of all proportion to anything you could deserve and is only in relationship to what you need. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, It was not a precious stone jar that was broken. It was his body that was broken. And it was not an expensive Indian perfume that was poured out. It was his lifeblood that was poured out. And it was not devotion that was deserved. You see, when the woman poured that stuff on Jesus, that was devotion that was deserved. Jesus' devotion to you is not deserved. His devotion to me is not deserved. He didn't anoint a holy rabbi when he anointed me with salvation, or you? He put perfume on an already dead man or woman. And just like Jesus' anointing came before his death, Jesus' anointing of salvation can come before yours. So that even as we grow old and sick and die, as we get tired, as we go through all the crap we go through, that intermingled with the stench of death that comes through suffering and pain and frustration, there is another fragrance lingering. I mean, think about this. Have you ever thought about the rest of the passion story after this? I mean, have you ever wondered if, if John just didn't include Pilate while he's interviewing Jesus going, what is that smell? Why do you smell that intensely? Like, what is going on? You know, I mean, just think, before the Sanhedrin, in the, in the jail, they throw him in a pit in a jail, and all the, you know, all the people in the house are like, what is that smell? Like, do you have any Motrin? Like, what is going on? 
I mean, he's going to the cross, right? Bleeding on the cross. And people see that. And yet, there's this fragrance filling the air around him. This beauty, this perfume. They're watching a man, a dead man walking, go to the cross. And they smell this fragrance of beauty. And, they, and, and I'm sure most of them did not put it together. But think of that, how God— his, how his providence did that. that. Those men and women stood there and smelled the beauty of the Savior, not even recognizing it. It was just a common grace that God gave. Right? And this woman didn't do it for that reason. She didn't do it because it was practical. She didn't do it because God had some really interesting providential, thematic, whatever. She just had a bottle of perfume. She was totally devoted to Jesus. And she just put it on him because she just had to show him she loved him. That's it. That's all there is to it. You can't plan it. If you plan it, the beauty goes away. It's got to be a spring of devotion, responding to beauty, creating beauty. That's totally wholehearted and totally self-forgetful. And if we're moderated, it's because there is another love chaining us back. And my love of my money and my leisure and giving my kids all the advantages, all of those are chains keeping me from the canvas. But this can only happen when we see the Savior as more beautiful than the beautiful thing this woman did for Jesus. That's it. And, and some of you, I mean, all I could do is invite you, just let the Holy Spirit come and break open the stone jar of your heart and dump out whatever's in there and put in the fragrance of salvation. Just let him do it. Just come to Jesus. I mean, just come to the beautiful one. Let him make you beautiful by putting a devotion in you that has no measure, no limit, no proportion. Or let him do it again pray. Father, um, you were the one who said through the Son that everywhere the gospel would be preached in the world, this woman would be remembered. And it took me a really long time to figure out why the heck that would be. She's the only one that was this over the top. She was the only one that was this extravagant. She really was the only one that was totally out of all measure, out of all proportion, out of all moderation and gave herself whatever she had totally to you. And so we thank you for Mary. And we pray that you would make us like her. And I pray that nobody in here would be scandalized by this and, and end up making a decision like Judas. That if this is the way it is, I don't want any part of this. This is totally not practical. Help them to see the aesthetic beauty of the fragrant Savior in Jesus. Pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us to see the truth as it is, that we would see the beauty we need to be wholehearted and self-forgetful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.